We are in, as everyone knows, this book by Mark Jones, Knowing Sin. Um, how many pages is it? It's more than 185 pages, but it's pretty slender given the topic. Uh, it's been good. Let's, uh, let's open with prayer. Father, uh, we are uh, grateful beyond words to be gathered, to be gathered to hear from you and your word, to be gathered to worship you uh, and praise you, uh, especially with uh, how we can go through our life uh, praising you with our life, worshiping you with all that we are. And we... Um, we do ask your blessing on this time and on all that we do this morning here as your gathered people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, today is two chapters, chapter 12 and 13. Uh, chapter 12 is sin's envy. Chapter 13 is sin's unbelief. Um and you could, I mean, you could turn those titles around a little bit. Sin's envy and sin's unbelief implies um, a, a quality of sin, okay? That is, sin has a certain quality, envy, unbelief, and it does, of course. Uh, the other way you could, <clears throat> you could turn it around and, and say envy as a sin or unbelief as a sin, and we'll... You'll see in the, if you've read the book, you'll notice that he does both. Um, every, with every chapter I read, uh, I have read, I, I think that this, uh, I, I think, now, now that was sobering. Uh, it was more sobering than the last chapter. Uh, but I'm finding, if I'm finding each chapter is more, more uh, sobering than the last one. These two certainly are especially chapter 13. Years ago, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember this book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Uh, he was a CFO of the Navigators, I think, at the time. And as he was writing that book, I think it was just before he published it, I, uh, I was in a conference on this topic, The Pursuit of Holiness, up at... Uh, Glen Airy, and uh, he uses, he, the way this guy uses the, the Puritans, he used the Puritans, especially uh, Owen. And he, and he said, I just remember this exasperated look he had on his face. He said, I, I read a paragraph of, of the Puritans on this topic, and I, have to, I just have to stop and close the book and put it down and, and get myself back together. Well, that, that's how this is. This material has been. In in these two six, I'm sorry. In these two chapters, Jones covers the sin of envy and how in the first in chapter twelve, the sin of envy and how it leaves the envious unsatisfied and unhappy, stressed and distressed. Uh, how it brings great harm to others. In fact. How it can be, uh, how how it accounts for the great unhappiness 
uh, to a large degree there is in the world in this, uh, in this present age. And then chapter 13, unbelief as a sin, the nature of unbelief and the great harm that results from it. Um, and as we go along, we'll look at the opposite, opposite virtues that are uh, 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 contrasting. I'd like to spend most of our time on chapter 13. Uh, let's just see how that works out. So let's uh, get into it. First, regarding envy, uh, let's start out with just beginning to get a definition of envy. Uh, hopefully, like, I can't remember who it was, uh, uh, said that we want a biblical definition of envy. Although I, I happen to think dictionary definitions of envy can be helpful too. What, what other words, what other sins are synonymous with envy or, or nearly synonymous. Let's just open the floor with that. Covetousness. Right, okay. Jealousy, okay. Lack of contentment, okay. Well, I might as well just go on to chapter 13. You guys pretty well covered everything there. Uh, you know, people have, uh, like the word jealousy, for instance, people have often asked, well, what's jealousy and what's envy? Well, you can get a pretty good idea of what, you know, jealousy is something you possess that, that uh, you're, you think of someone else is going to take from you. Envy is wanting something else that someone else takes from you. However, they've been used, those words biblically are used sometimes in an overlapping way. And I, I think if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So uh, you can use them not all the time interchangeably, but they, they, they bring out different things, don't they? Yeah. And jealousy, for instance, uh, it's used positively and negatively. It's used of God isn't it? He's jealous over his people, over his covenant, uh, over his promises. What other sins might go along with envy or result from envy? Oops, excuse me. Okay. Theft, okay. Jane? Mm-hmm. Okay. All kinds of things, right? Hatred, uh, covetousness, someone used that a while ago. Uh, pride is, is really, uh, it, it results in envy. That is, it's the father of envy, if you will. Um, Self-centeredness. Anger. That's an important one, isn't it? Think of all the things, um, all the harm that has resulted from anger. Um, the first section he has in this is uh, pride-inducing envy. Uh, 
In the introductory section, Jones says that envy is the daughter of pride. Envy is a, a sin that gives no satisfaction due to the pain it experiences at the good fortune of others. Get that picture in your mind for a moment. Envy stresses over someone ha else having what we don't have or more than what we have. And that having can be uh, possessions, right? It can be uh, um, status, you know, honor. Uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, yeah, we could dwell on that for a moment. I mean, that, that that's caused all kinds of, especially in this age when the image is, is everything, isn't it, right? Uh, how can, another question for you, for the floor, how can contemporary culture exacerbate this? or magnify envy, or cause it? Marketing, okay. Social media, right. Yeah. What, what, what do you see on social media? Like uh, Facebook. I mean, I, I don't do Facebook, but what do you see on the worst of it, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I went to, <laughs> this is a picture of a mountaintop that I climbed in, in outer Mongolia or wherever, you know. Um, my, my company has a, it's something like a social media. It's, it's, it's a bit irritating sometimes. Uh, it's, uh, I can't remember, it's, well, it's Teams actually, but. It's not only news about the company and about the different departments of the company. It's, it's also, I mean, there's a guy out there who, who, who lives in India. He goes into the Mongolian areas, or, or not, up in that area, in the, the heights, and he's, he's a bird watcher. He, he looks for birds, and they have, they have some extraordinary birds there, and he'll put a picture on there and talk about it. Uh, that that's not that doesn't bother me so much, except there is a lot of that sort of thing. So it's we we put ourselves best self forward. We we Photoshop. We we sometimes we put a p different picture of someone else because they look better. And this is me. Well, yes, right. And and it uses envy, doesn't it? It fosters it. It tries to foster it. The sense of entitlement that he talked about contributes to this. It's due to me. I should have that. The government owes it to me. My parents owe it to me. Society or my company owes it to me. I see that a lot. Or dare I say it, our ch my, my church owes it to me. Okay? Uh, um with that as a starting point, we can see it's all downhill from there, and all kinds of misery will inevitably result. Uh, he, he lays out the nature of envy and its consequences. If a person distresses over someone's, someone else's blessing in life instead of being happy for them, what does that say about his view of God? 
he, he's, he, at least indirectly, he's despising God's authority and his providence, his sovereignty. His, he, yeah, it's a trust issue. Uh, his goodness and wisdom, his mercy dictate that I'm going to give this person this particular blessing in this measure. I'm going to withhold it from this person, but he does it out of his kindness and goodness, doesn't it? Well, that's not how I see it. He has more, okay? Um, another aspect, let's see, the consequence of that is disruption uh, horizontally, isn't it? Between man and his neighbor and between man and God. Another aspect of envy is that it, it's, it's an inward sin. It can, so it can lurk hidden. I don't want to appear envious even though I am. So I can smile at my neighbor and, and compliment him on something, on this or that, when I'm inside, I'm like this. You know. uh, the, this will become more evident in the next chapter, but uh, Jones here speculates that this Satan was envious of Adam and Eve before they fell uh, because they had what he had lost, and he set out to destroy it. They had true, true uh, happiness. Okay, he devoted himself to destroying that. Jones concludes this section this way: Envy is a trademark of the wicked, whereby they seek in their unhappiness to harm others. At its core, envy attacks God and his and his sovereign control of all things. Envy wants to take the wheel from God's hand. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, the next section is it's, it's entitled Wicked Envy, and I'm going to kind of breeze by this a little bit, uh, but uh, let, let me read, um, let's see. Yeah, okay, let me read a couple of passages that place envy in a context. Uh, Mark 7, 21, the words of the Lord, for... From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft. You notice there, it, it's that, that thing I do, stealing, comes from within, okay? Uh, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these, come, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Okay, so you'll notice some of the things in there we mentioned early, theft, murder, coveting, uh, deceit, we didn't mention that one, slander and pride, we didn't, we didn't mention slander. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, uh, they're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't want to dwell on this, but I just point out what, what's going on in the... the in Eastern Europe. Isn't it this kind of thing? 
someone wants to rebuild the former glory and uh, they're guilty of all these things here, okay. Examples uh, of envy in the Bible, um, the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. I picked some words out of the text of that story in Genesis 37. Uh, they hated him. They couldn't speak civilly to him, hostility. They, they're conspiring to kill him, uh, callously selling him into slavery, lying to their father because of envy. They, the word there is jealousy. Uh, the jealousy of Saul towards David in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, what we see here is instructive. Uh, the words I'll pick out there. That, that are said of Saul, anger, displeasure, suspicion, uh, punishment from God, he, he was punished, assault, you know, throwing that spear, attempted murder, conspiracy, he, he tried to draw other people into this, his plan, his obsession to kill David, maliciousness, fear, even even some kind of mental torment or madness, okay? At one point it says Saul was raving about in his house over this whole thing. Uh, Rachel, envy, and there the word is, is, is envy. He, she, she envied her sister. Haman's anger against Mordecai um, may have been due to envy. Uh, another example of uh, how our culture aggravates envy is, is the whole idea of keeping up with the Joneses, which is probably a good 50-year-old concept, a term that's been around. Uh, keeping up with the Joneses, which might have struck close to home for the author. Uh, how, how would you explain that dynamic? Uh, he, he goes to Ecclesiastes 4.4 to portray this. Uh, then I saw, and, and remember what Ecclesiastes is, it's sort of a, a portrayal of what life is like, what godless life is like in, the, in this present age. Okay. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from man's envy of his neighbor. This is also a, a vanity in striving after wind. It's what Jones... Jones says it's what makes the world goes, go around. Pride and envy work together to ensure we always get more than the other guy, or attempt to anyway. Um, this third section, uh, he, again, I'll just briefly touch on it because we have already. He seeks to show that the sin of envy lies behind much of the unhappiness in the world, along with sin in a more general sense. Uh, and really, here it's the unhappiness of those who envy. They can't be glad for the blessings bestowed on another. Uh, they would sooner live with their dis dissatisfaction. Okay. They look at life differently. Um, temporal blessings uh, that God bestows, uh, 
the Christian sees that as a good and gracious God controlling all things in the world. He gives the gifts to men and, and women and children according to his wisdom and power and goodness. But the godless are never satisfied and never know the satisfaction with what God provides. And there's, uh, we'll get into this more at the end, but there's even a warning here for Christians. We can know the harmful nature of envy. We can still get terribly agitated as we reflect on the success of others instead of holding a settled confidence in God, okay, who knows what we need and do not need. Um, and of course, given that, envy can lead a person to harming their neighbor in a number of different ways. Uh, Saul's envy of David, for instance. Uh, you notice what that resulted in. He tried to rope in his son, Jonathan. He tried to rope in his daughter. Uh, you know, I'll marry these two and she'll be a pestilence to him, or I can't remember how, how it was put. Um, she, he must have known his daughter better. Um, uh, we saw that in the life of Joseph and his brothers. Okay. So Proverbs 26, 27, he who digs a pit and will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. The envious person rejoices when someone else suffers loss. Envy is anti-love. It's hatred. Okay, we've used that word before. It, it, opposite of what Jesus said. Uh, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do good. Lend. Expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. Be merciful, as, even as your father is merciful. Um, whom we envy? Who are the people we envy? He points out an interesting thing that I never thought of before. We don't, we don't tend to envy um, people who are different than us, uh, perhaps similar to us, really. The same job, the same calling. Um, one football player may, or, or, or let me put this more, probably more pertinent. One former football player, some college football player may, may envy the guy who made it, you know, the, the place kicker for the Cowboys or whatever. Uh, the Jewish, think about this for a minute, um, he, he says this, the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and elders, envied Jesus. Even the godless Pilate could sense this. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up, Matthew 27. The envy in the hearts of the wicked religious leaders caused them to inflict harm on Jesus. And why was this? It was also because Jesus was a true religious leader, one whom God was with in his ministry. We've been hearing this from the Gospel of John, haven't we? Uh, Jesus is the tr good and true shepherd 
and the religious leaders of, of Israel could not abide that. They couldn't stand that. Okay. How does social media blow everything out of proportion? Another, you know, uh, it, it is, we've already talked about this, is what we see of others on social media, a true portrayal of them? No, it, it's, it's, it's always slanted. Uh, my own experience with social media is basically what I get in my texting app. <laughs> Pictures mostly and whatnot. Even there, I get a somewhat distorted view. Uh, get this. When, when my grandson, Peter, is feeling grumpy, crying loud, or just has had a, just had a diaper explosion, I don't think my daughter is going to whip out her phone and think, oh, Gramps has, just, just has to see a video of this. You know, just to balance out all the pictures of a happy, smiling, laughing baby that she sends. Uh, perhaps the most important section is the sixth one, why we envy. As with other sins, it's best to consider first how this sin is primarily against God. We rebel against God's sovereignty, his providence, how he governs all things. Envy fails to love and embrace God's providential rule in the world. We don't, we don't bend the knee to that, the mystery of his sovereignty. Um, positive virtues that are the opposite of envy, uh, and in fact are the antidote to envy. Faith, resting in the assurance that believes that God is good, wise, powerful, and sovereign towards us. Contentment with what we have, what the Lord has blessed us with. Uh, this drives out resentment over others, good. And belief in God's promise, like in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Um. Harvey Newcomb, I don't know anything about him. That was a new name to me. He quotes, uh, they are at bottom, the envious are at bottom a selfish person. The law of God requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, but the envious person will hate his neighbor because he's not permitted by the law to love him less than himself. Envy is a disposition which can never be satisfied so long as there is a superior being in the universe. Uh, this is reflective, of course, of Satan, isn't it? Uh, we'll get more into that in a moment. Uh, when he saw where things were headed, he didn't like it because he wasn't at the top, okay? Uh, envy is aimed ultimately at the throne of God, and the envious person can never be happy while God reigns. Um, perhaps we should stop and consider here for a moment uh, how we view, how we have viewed the sin of envy. 
have we viewed it as one of the lesser sins? Now, I've been expressing envy here in terms that were ultimate and absolute, but we're all aware, aren't we, of that little twinge of envy we have experienced occasionally? Uh, okay. So it, it, I, I'm just pointing that out to say there's kind of a s scope, but it doesn't make envy less of a rebellion against God, even the littlest part of it. Perhaps it can seem to be small and unobtrusive, and a small and unobtrusive thing in one's heart. But we should know that it cannot stay small and manageable. Okay. The application section. How can a Christian combat the, the sin of envy? Uh, the, the Christian life consists in part, I'm sorry, yeah, in part in putting off of our sin, putting on Christ, and the righteous behavior that he calls us to. Uh, this doesn't happen overnight, of course. It's lifelong. Um, you can see how this plays out, in, like in Ephesians 4. I can't remember quite what's in it. Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. But it, it plays out over time. We'll fail. We'll, you know, God will help us. We'll fail, you know back and forth until we learn our lesson. We can ask two things of God in this, uh, Jones points out. We can ask God for true happiness in Him, in Christ. It's ultimately from God and only in God. Uh, Psalm 4, 6 to 7, uh, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us. Well, that's the answer, lift up the life the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 4. Secondly, ask God for true love, not only toward him, but our neighbor. Okay? We're all aware, I think, of struggling with love, loving our neighbor. Love does not envy. 1 Corinthians 13, but love rejoices at the uh, uh, good others enjoy. He closes the chapter this way. Love begets humility, and humility wishes well to others instead of harm. We can feel joy instead of pain at their good. At the same time, we can truly feel their pain in the losses they experience. Uh, as we learn more and more by God's grace to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12. Well, I, I'm taking that as a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, that, and that's good to consider, but they didn't get there just all of a sudden, they got there in stages. Um, things play out, build upon one another. What are we building in our lives, in our hearts? Okay. Yeah. Right, and, and that—that's—that's that's a good point. Uh, 
I think I have something at the end of this next chapter about similar thing where the, the Christian who's, who's maturing in his Christian life develops ways to keep aware of what's going on, okay, in his heart and mind. He, he sees a thing and he, he doesn't just breeze past it because that's the way to perdition, <laughs> if you want, really. But he takes it as a clue. Where am I at? What, you know, what direction am I heading? And then he can correct, correct himself. Awareness, self-awareness. Um, right, yes. Right, yeah. Again, I mean, at the end of this next chapter, I have a similar thing where, you know, if I catch myself consciously considering some sin, I can either be aware of that or not. <laughs> and that's a disastrous distinction, I think. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, unbelief is, is a rebellion against God. It's a disbelief in God, really. I don't think I answered your question, but... Okay, so chapter 13. This may be the most sobering chapter. First of all, where do we first find unbelief in the Bible and in the history of man? It, isn't it where Satan challenges the Word of God? Eve kind of gives a little pushback against that, but he challenges it more, and she gives in. Okay, So she's weighing these two words she's heard. Which am I going to believe? Well, maybe she didn't even weigh it. She just headed off into disbelief. Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin. Unbelief was the chief of man's first sin. Their first miscarrying was not believing God's word. And therefore, they especially wounded our nature with unbelief. And faith being extinguished, the contrary principles have come to possess the mind, okay? Is it any doubt why we're where we're at, okay? Charnock uh, referred to unbelief as the fountain of all sin, the cause of also of all the sin that grew up to such maturity in the old world. Um, Christ says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in our, your sins. So he, Christ there says on this specific matter of belief is a, is a critical matter. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Uh, that's echoed, of course, all over scripture. When by faith we accept the atoning sacrifice of Christ for our sins, then our sins are completely covered and paid for. But unbelief leaves us utterly and completely alone and without defense before a just and holy and righteous God, God Almighty, a judge, God Almighty, who is completely just in all his judgments. And Jones puts it this way, God gives his best, his son, 
and the Spirit to overcome the worst, our unbelief. The Spirit grants us faith, not simply in God, but in Jesus Christ, the mediator, mediator between God and man. The poison of unbelief requires this. It requires the Spirit, and it requires this mediator. Unbelief is not merely intellectual. Okay, don't buy that story. It's, it involves a radical sin problem. Um, he, he makes, the, this is important to, to point out but in his next section, but I, I don't want to dwell on it too long. Um, he distinguishes between two main types of unbelief and get the contrast here between this and the next section. This is types of unbelief. The next section is types of unbelievers. Okay, so. If you read it, you may be like me and, and not understand the distinction so much, but that, that's the way he puts it. First, <clears throat> negative unbelief, and I'm not using his words, I'm using words I understand. <laughs> negative unbelief refers to those who, never hearing the gospel of Christ explicitly and perhaps with no knowledge at all, okay, that, that's the first type of unbelief. Secondly, positive unbelief, which he also calls formal infidelity, refers to those who, hearing the gospel, refuse to believe Christ as Savior. Okay, so you see the distinction there. And he's going to address mostly that second type of unbelief. Um, the former stand guilty before God, but without being charged, this is a tricky point here, without being charged with rejecting the gospel. Uh, notice in Romans 1.20 what specifically it is that they are without excuse regarding. And it's knowing God and yet not believing him. Um, I'll just read it. For, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made have been made, so they are without excuse. The latter are charged with the more serious sin of consciously rejecting the good news, rejecting Christ. Uh, John 3, 16 to 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he, he gave his Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life. That's, what does that say about God? You know, it's his goodness and his, his good will, if you will. For, yeah. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Good will. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay? What, what will people be called to account for? Okay? Especially these. 
there's a lot in John on this whole topic, okay? In Matthew 11, he denounces Chorazin, Bethsaida, I'm not saying that right, of course, and Capernaum for rejecting him, even after seeing his mighty works among them, even after hearing his words, saying that we'll be more bearable and tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom because they, saw, they never saw his works. It's not that they'll escape judgment, but they won't be judged for rejecting Christ. That's how Jones puts it. Types of unbelievers. And, then, and again, this is the formal infidelity, the positive unbelief. He, he, and I, I think this is important because it gives us an idea of the range of unbelief, of positive unbelief. Some experience a superficial attraction or initial awakening, uh, perhaps through a pricked conscience and, attraction, and an attraction to the gospel. But then something happens to turn them away. You know, it could be a variety of things. This is explained, I think, in the parable of the sower and the seed. Uh, some have only a superficial understanding of the word, the word that they hear, and the evil one snatches it away. Some receiving the word with joy, but having no root in themselves, falls away. After experiencing tribulation or persecution over the word, some hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, Mark, Mark adds, choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. None of these experience true and enduring faith, and none experience salvation. Others, okay, second category, others, while not vigorously opposing the gospel, express respectful disagreement through doubts or skepticism that keeps them from assenting to the good news. Um, these still face condemnation. Uh, true faith, even if it's weak, requires assent to the claims that Jesus died for sinners and rose again from the dead. Respectful unbelief is still unbelief. Uh, and we have to deliver that respectfully, by the way. <laughs> Peter says. Uh, going further, another type of unbeliever, those who express, I get this, okay, mere assent to the gospel truth, but without the trust necessary for saving faith. Uh, John, think, John Owen thought that our churches had a lot of these people in them. Okay, he describes two types of faith. Faith which true believers possess that purifies the heart and works by love and a, a, a uh, merely historical faith that does not justify. They, these never move beyond knowing and believing truth intellectually to actually embracing it and the Savior who reveals it. They've heard just enough of the gospel to be inoculated against it. Jesus and Paul agonized over open denial among the Jews and the falling away among disciples disciples of their day. Uh, the section, section four, the sinfulness of formal 
infidelity. And I think this is the heart of this chapter. Whatever the type of unbelief, the scriptures leave no doubt that it's sin. And, and it's a sin first and primarily against God. Refusing to believe Christ is refusing to believe God. When Jesus spoke and worked, God spoke and worked. We're learning this also in John, John 5, especially in other passages. Charnock said of those rejecting Christ, it casts dis dishonor upon God more than all the other iniquities. It is a departing from him after the highest and clearest declarations of his nature, a representation of him under all the disparagements imaginable and under all the encouragements of complying with him. As those that trust Christ are to the praise of God's glory, Ephesians 1.12, so those that distrust him are to the dishonor of his name. Now, get what he's saying here. Uh, it brings to mind passages, a lot, of, a number of familiar passages like Hebrews 1. Uh, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Son coming in the flesh, okay? Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world, he is the radiance of God's of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, it's kind of a reference to the whole scope of his earthly life, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1. Uh, John 1, 14 uh, through 18, you know, we've beheld his glory. The, the, you know, no one's seen God, but in Christ we've beheld his glory. Okay. God gave his best in providing his son for our sins. So rejecting him is the worst thing we, the worst people, can do. Okay. Don't, don't quibble over that in your mind. It's, I mean, it's that it's that uh, distinguished, okay? All of God's attributes are behind the work of redemption. His wisdom, his righteousness, his mercy, his truth, that is, that he can be trusted, his love. All these attributes strengthen our faith in him. Everything of God is for us if we believe. There's not an attribute, this is Charnock, there, there's not an attribute but God intended to glorify in Christ. So, so there is not one but this sin of unbelief doth, as he puts it, really vilify. Okay? This besmirching the the honor and the character of God. Uh, we attempt, to, as Don Carson, I think, would put it, to ungod God, uh, to say that God exists, but he's not good or personal or any, 
anything the things that the scripture says he is is a form of unbelief portraying God as an evil tyrant robbing him and Christ of their peculiar glory that that's there there's alone from where his attributes most clearly shine forth refusing the good news calls God a liar while embracing it testifies that God is true it attempts to take from God his faithfulness and truthfulness. God declares through his son, Jones puts it this way, the greatest truth and good towards sinners. Indeed, to reject this message murders one's own soul, since it came from him who has so humbled himself that unworthy sinners might be so exalted. There could not be a higher goodness shown toward sinners than the gospel. Okay. Unbelief, he puts it this way in one section, unbelief is devilish. In unbelief, we see parallels to the rebellion of the devil in a few important ways. It's not surprising here that it is in human pride that we see these parallels. Uh, listen to this list of ways that Satan's pride is displayed. He would rather delight in the subjection of others to him. He, he was the highest of of the angels order he would rather delight in the subjection of others to him th than in his subjection to God that's an insight from Augustine the dignity that he desired belonged to the son of God alone you see where we're headed <laughs> we're headed toward the, the son wanting the place that was assigned to Christ alone, okay? He did not wish to be like the other angels who are, as Hebrews 1.14 puts it, uh, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. He didn't want none of that. He would not be subject to the Son of God as God-man and worship him. Uh, Hebrews 1.6 says, and again when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all, all God's angels worship him. Okay. He didn't want that. He was not content with God's goodness uh, that was showed, sh shown to him, given him. And thus he did not serve God as he ought to have, seeking his own ways above God's ways. Unbelief is devilish in this way. Sharnock again. <clears throat> in all these ways, unbelief has a resemblance to the devil's sin. It affects an equality with God in self-dependence, rests in the sufficiency of its own righteousness without bowing down the will to the acceptance of grace. 
delights not in subjection to God, refuses Christ, the head and mediator of God's appointment, in all which pride is signal, and indeed pride of reason and pride of will are the two arms wherein the strength of unbelief lie. Uh, furthermore, unbelief is worse than that of the devils who never received an offer of mercy like those who hear and refuse the good news to sinners. So unbelief is a sin more inexcusable than that of the devils. And the last section here, application. What does all this mean for Christians? The subject of this chapter has been those outside the faith, the unregenerate unbeliever. What about us? I'm sure there are several ways this has significance for believers. Let me point out one briefly and then end with another from Jones. And, and I, I think I've mentioned this before. It occurred to me the other day that to consciously choose to indulge in some sin is an act of unbelief, which uh, is, of course, a sin in itself. You see... Sin kind of have a, has a multiplier effect, if you will. We choose to suppress belief in God who is present, knowing all our acts and thoughts. We choose to suppress belief in a God who trains us. Uh, as in Titus 2, 11 to 14, his grace trains us through our Christian life, to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires on the negative side and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So this sin, it, it causes us to suppress. We, if we suppress that, then we, uh, we're not enjoying the riches of this training, okay? So take that as a caution, uh, but more helpfully, I hope, as a, as a way to raise our awareness of what's going on inside us and how to correct our ways and the direction uh, that we're headed in. The second way is what I'll, I mean, I, I kind of got this from Jones. Uh, the second way is what I'll call the work of belief, okay? Of course, this is not working to gain righteousness uh, before God, but, but exercising our saving faith, uh, or perhaps more helpfully, leaning into that faith. Okay. You'll find this commendation all over the pages of Scripture, but 
First uh, Peter 1 is one place that's saturated with it. Just to point out one instance here, verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So one, way, one thing we do is, is we, we have to take, as Christians, as regenerate Christians, saved by faith, we have to, uh, to take an active participation with God, with His Spirit, in, in our uh, sanctification. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. This is a deliberate, conscious settling of the mind and heart on your only hope, on the faithfulness of God to fulfill His Word in Christ, not only for eternal life, but also for this life, this present age, as uh, Titus puts it. Just as surely as the unbeliever has absolutely cut himself off from the grace of God by his unbelief, God has, with absolute certainty, redeemed His own by the blood of His Son and brought them into the family of God. Uh, I, I highly recommend taking some time to dwell on 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, or some other, there, there's other passages, uh, especially in times of doubt or anxiety, temptation, uh, any time in your Christian life walk in life. Okay? Now I have a note here to read the last paragraph of what Joan says, but I'm going to skip that. You can, you can read it yourself in the book. Um, it follows the same line of thought. Um, are there any thoughts, any questions? I'm taking liberty here. Liberty's going past 1030, but let's take a moment if there are any. Yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure about the first part, but yeah, the latter part for sure. Well, yeah, and, and that's, that's all over, that's, that's all over the page of scripture too, by the way. Um, but notice what it does. It points us toward the goodness of God. Okay? Think about that. Think about what the work of redemption says about God. It points us to the goodness of God. I, it, it is, that's true. I guess I'd caught, remind us of something here, too. Um, Paul says, of, let's see, of the Colossians, that you were some of those things. Okay, now, again, some of us may have been little sinners over here, and others may be greater sinners, but uh, as far as the flagrantness of it, you know, with the sin, but we were all in that category. Uh, I think there's... A, there's a generous heart suggested as we come to believe unbelievers, you know, taking to them this good God. Okay. 
I think we better stop there. We're well over time. What? Oh. <laughs> yeah.